Today on The Ticker Tapes, we hear from Anne, who decided to start taking part in clinical trials after being diagnosed with heart failure. I feel research is so important because without it, we're not going to progress. And I wouldn't be here without other people having participated in research. And this is my way of improving things. And who knows? you know, down the line, it may may even benefit me because I might need treatment that they've discovered. From the British Heart Foundation, I'm Molly Tresiden. On the ticker tapes, we hear from people living with heart and circulatory conditions. On this episode, Anne talks to me about her many years of living with an undiagnosed heart condition and how she now hopes that taking part in trials will help other heart patients in the future. And could you start by talking through when you first knew that something was going on with your heart? Because you were quite young when that happened, is that right? Yes, I was 19. I was a student at Leeds Poly and I'd moved from Hull, which is very, very flat, to Leeds, which is very hilly. And I was living at the top of a YWCA hostel on the third floor. And I began to get just feel not quite right and then gradually as the days went on I was getting more and more breathless and then one day I'd walked up the hill from college and I couldn't actually get up to the third floor to my room I just had to stop part way up and I just thought yeah something's going on went to the GP and he thought I'd got glandular fever which typical for a student, um, you, you're tired, you're not functioning. Anyway, they did some blood tests and decided it wasn't glandular fever, but my red blood cells were out of alignment. So they sent me to Leeds General Infirmary and I spent a day there having all sorts of tests and poked and prodded and whatever. And at the end of the day, they worked out I'd actually got a hole in my heart, uh, which came as something of a shock because I'd been active as a child, a hill walker, played hockey for school, I ran. Yeah, I just did everything, uh, anything normal, you know, a normal child does. So that was in the about the May time. And in the November, they had me in and basically repaired the hole so I had that done um, about two days before Princess Anne got married because I remember lying on intensive care and watching the wedding on the telly and (laughs) being very miffed because I fell asleep um, and missed most of it Uh, but anyway I was in hospital about two weeks and then went home for about another eight weeks and I was back at college in January so yeah quick recovery very very fit after that Uh, I could walk a lot further and just function like any student you know made the most of life as you do. Mm. So you were sort of able to forget that anything had even happened? Well you don't forget a scar down from your your collarbone down to your navel (laughs) it's all there to remind you all the time. (laughs) Was it done with open heart surgery at the time? Oh yes yeah well this was 1973 Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I don't know if they'd heard of keyhole surgery in those days. Maybe mm-hmm. they had, but um, certainly wasn't keyhole. 
Yeah, so it's pretty major surgery to have to undergo when you're only 19. Yes, yeah, yeah. But once I'm in the treadmill of these things, I just take it in my stride. It doesn't really phase me. Mm. And so then you went back to university and you carried on with life as normal? Absolutely. Till, I suppose, what my daughter was about seven or eight. So that would have been, yeah, my early 40s, by which time, yes, obviously I was married, had three children, moved house five times. I'd actually decided to be a stay-at-home mum, as you did in those days. Uh, And I was just, it was just before I was thinking about going back to work because my daughter was old enough for me to think about it. Mm. Um, But yes, I just started getting pains in my chest and went to the GP and they did an ECG and sent me to the hospital. Didn't find anything, yeah, being uh, overreacting. Hysterical woman, yeah. So, but this kept happening. I mean, it was about every couple of years or so, and I'd get an episode and go to the GP. They'd do the ECG, send me to hospital. They'd do either an echo or another ECG. or, But they just sort of said, well, there's nothing to see. There's nothing obvious going on. Don't worry about it. And then this happened, I suppose, four or five times. Hmm. And then... On the the last, the well, the, the final time I went, the consultant said, look, we'll do an angiogram. We'll get in there and see what's going on. So went and did that. Pretty horrible because they hit a nerve in my leg. So, mm. yeah, wasn't, wasn't at all clever. Anyway, he came and stood over my bed afterwards and sort of looked down his nose at me and said, well, there's absolutely nothing wrong with you. Go away. You know, if you get chest pain, don't worry about it. So, yep, took him at face value, went away, carried on with life, ignored ignored all the chest pain I was getting. And then I suppose it was early 50s or mid 50s. And I was getting very dizzy and getting the chest pain and pain in my arm, whatever. And I thought, oh, I'll just go to the GP, see what's going on. And he said, well, basically, you've got vertigo. You know, um, we can do um, a manoeuvre on your head if it doesn't go away, but don't worry about it. So I went away and the uh, vertigo eventually sort of cleared up. And I suppose I I, I slowed down a bit because obviously if you're dizzy, you can't Mm. live at 100 miles an hour. Um, By this time, the boys were grown up. Um, My daughter was still at home, but she was sort of O-level year, GCSE, so quite capable. And then a couple of years later, I had a similar thing. My mum was very poorly. She she lived 40 miles away, so I was going across to her once a week, just sort of sorting things out. Anyway, the GP said, yeah, anxiety attacks, which, you know, I thought, yeah, well, fair enough, you know, that that fits in you know I'm, I'm running around at 100, hmm. 101 miles an hour and trying to do too much yeah I am I would be anxious so so thought no more about it although my mum went into hospital to have her heart valve replaced and I remember one day walking up the stairs because trying to be active I try not to use lifts and um, walked up the stairs 
And by the time I got up the stairs, I was leaning on the wall, trying not to fall over. Mm. And I walked onto the ward and I ne- nearly stopped at the nurse's station and said, can you just find me a bed and sort me out? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't, but I just thought, yeah, <laughs> get us a double room and sort me out. Um, yeah, and that's not anxiety. That's not anxiety. No, yeah. no, absolutely not. But again, it was really difficult to get any any help. Mm. You know, if you've just been told you've got anxiety. Anyway, I just sort of carried on and thought, well, there's not a lot I can do about this. I'm, I'm not getting any medical help. And, and, you know, were you thinking, well, you know, the doctors know best and that they would have found it if there was something that was really wrong? Uh, well, you have that at the back of your mind that, yeah, they, they sh- you think they ought to have found something if there's something wrong. Mm. But on the other hand, you know you're not right but you just can't get to the bottom of it because, um, you know, nobody, nobody is um, sending you any further. You know, the GP, they're doing their best. They're presented with somebody with symptoms and all they can do is go on the symptoms that they're presented with and, and do what they think is the best thing. Mm. And obviously the GP, heart, heart issues wasn't flagging up to him. And he was just doing what he thought was the right thing. And do you, and was that partly because, you know, you weren't what would look like a typical heart patient? Well, absolutely. 50-year-old woman mm. who who enjoys running, hill walking, yeah. very active. And I mean, we, we live in a village of, what, 4,000 people. He lives in the village. So he was aware of all the activities I was doing and involved in in the village because I mean that's village life. You sort mm. of do know what what everybody's doing, um, you know. And I, I played in a, an orchestra. And I played in a, a wind band. I played French horn, which takes quite a bit of oomph. <laughs> and you probably thought, well, you know, there can't be much wrong with her if she's going to the gym and blowing a horn and <laughs> running and hill walking and you know, mm. if you're still managing to do that, there can't be that much wrong, mm. um, which is fair assumption. But then, you know, as a person, I'm not going to give up and, and sit in a chair just because I'm feeling a bit woozy. Mm. Um, you know, I just sort of think, well, life's for a living, make the most of it. So anyway, I, I had a friend who was a really keen runner and she said, I can get you running. I'm sure I can get you running. We'll go out and I'll, I'll, I'll teach you to run. Because I said, oh, you know, I get from one lamppost to the next and I'm out of breath and I can't can't really run. I can do all sorts of other things. Anyway, I got the bug, really loved it, entered a 10K um, and we went out for practice runs. And it got to the stage where I was on a run and I get really dizzy and I'd have to stop. And then I noticed this was happening in gym classes that... If I, you know, an aerobics type class or a spinning class, cycling class, you know, I get really dizzy, have to stop. And I'd have to sort of wait for my head to sort of stop feeling dizzy and sort of woozy. Um, once that happened, then obviously I just carried on, didn't think anything about it because mm-hmm. I'd been told my heart was fine. Anyway, I was out on a run. Uh, no, I was in, in a, a spinning class and it happened three times in the class. Mm-hmm. And, I, and then my arm went heavy. And I thought, this, this isn't right. Now, there, there is something going on. Mm-hmm. So my friend took me home and we sort of messed about for a bit. 
and my husband said, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, well, actually, I know, I know they've said I'm all right, but actually, I just think I ought to get this checked out. Let's go to A&E and see what, what's what. Because if, it, if it's happening so, you know, three times in an hour mm-hmm. and a heavy arm, there's something not right. Anyway, I got to A&E, explained what, was, what had been going on over the last few months. And they did a troponin test and ECG and all that sort of thing and admitted me. And it turned out the troponin test had showed up that I'd had a heart attack, mm-hmm. at which I was not very impressed. <laughs> but again, I just thought, yeah, yeah, I mean, a heart attack, it's happened. Carry on, you know, just they'll sort me out and, and I'll get back to whatever. But I went up to a ward. And they wired me up with a, a monitor and the screen was on the nurse's station. So that, that was in the evening. And then the next morning I said, I feel really weird. And they looked at the monitor on the nurse's station. And the next thing I knew, there was a wheelchair by my bedroom. We're just going to take you onto another ward. Um, and they put me on coronary care and wired me up to a pacemaker type thing. Well, put these big pads on so that, you know, if my heart stopped, then it would kick in. Mm -hmm. And then uh, eventually they put in a temporary pacemaker, which was rather nasty because it was sort of a wire through my neck and then the box was outside. Mm. Uh, So that was, the heart attack happened on a Tuesday and I think it was a Saturday when they wired this thing up. And then the following Wednesday, I had a, a proper pacemaker fitted. And that was because your heart was beating in an irregular rhythm? It was atrial fibrillation. Yeah. So it wasn't a normal heart attack. It wasn't a blockage. It wasn't an electrical fault. Well, it was an electrical fault, but it wasn't a cardiac arrest or a heart attack. It was just something very weird. And so from this, you then did you then realise that the atrial fibrillation was what had been happening for the last sort of, what would it be, 10 years? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 But, you know, yes, palpitations, but doesn't everybody get palpitations? You know, when you've been brought up as a child with a heart problem and you just assume that everybody gets dizzy when they run the length of the hockey pitch or mm. climbs a, a 3,000 foot hill you've grown up with that for 10 years 20 years Mm. um you you sort of assume you don't know what's normal yeah and I suppose (laughs) you just find ways of working around it and managing it absolutely yeah life's for living (laughs) yeah so what happened after after all of this had happened and they gave you a pacemaker yes yeah yeah so basically 10 days and I was discharged and went home, went so had a another couple of weeks. What was it? No, this was a January. And so yeah, it was about another four or five weeks. I was at home just recovering and mm. building up my strength. And I went back to work beginning of March. Uh I went back part-time. But because I I was still getting very tired and I just, you know, mm. I, I could function, but I still needed an afternoon sleep and just needed to sort of get myself slowly back into doing things. I can't, yeah, that was uh, 2011. And then I sort of thought, well, I just wasn't getting back to full-time work. And the 
the people I was working for, they sent me to occupational health and their attitude was, well, you'll never work full time again. Um, you're never going to be well enough. So I thought, well, that's fair enough. You know, just go back to part time. But it was about 2012 and I was diagnosed at that point. They said, you've actually got a heart failure that has been caused by the heart attack. So it has left your heart somewhat weaker than it was before, um, which I realised because I just couldn't do the things I'd, I, I wanted to do. Right. And it's the, the thing I find hard, I mean, 10, 12 years later, the thing I find hard is knowing how fit I should be because obviously age makes a difference. So, you know, I, I, I live my life and I sort of think, am I doing less than other people of my age? Mm. Or, you know... Should I be able to do more? I just don't know what, what my levels should be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you get on with it. <laughs> and was uh, did you know what heart failure was before you were given that diagnosis? I had no idea. Yeah. No, no. And I mean, it was just a routine cardiology appointment. And he just said, oh, yeah, you've got heart failure. And I suppose I went away and read up about it, but I hadn't sort of... He didn't fully explain, or I don't remember him fully explaining quite what it was, you know, that it was the weakened muscle and mm. your heart wasn't beating as well. Um, and so bringing it forward to today, what does what does heart failure look like for you now? Uh, a raft of medication. So I'm taking about 10 different tablets a day. I mean, some of them are morning and afternoon, uh, morning and evening, and having to pace live I get I I can't really survive a full day without a sleep and as I explain it I start each day with seven teaspoons of energy and each activity I do uses up a certain number of teaspoons so like getting up and getting showered takes a teaspoon Mm. cooking dinner in the evening will, will take two I volunteer at a plant nursery, so I'm lifting and carrying and doing all, you know, running up and down the site and things. So a couple of hours there, that's probably three teaspoons. Mm -hmm. So I live my life having to monitor my energy levels Mm -hmm. and balance what I do. So if I do do an activity and I know I've then got to rest, I don't retrieve any teaspoons in the day by resting but it just enables me to to sort of get on and get through to the end of the day Mm. yeah so there's quite a lot of planning involved oh an enormous amount yes yeah you know I I still go off I'm in a walking group and we go off for a day although as we all get older our sort of seven eight mile hikes have now turned into four or five mile hikes Mm. Um, which is very kind of them because some people can still do 13, 14 miles. But this group, it's um, there's there's two or three of us who who aren't as able and we just do shorter walks. But I, yeah, I, I do a walk like that, but then it takes me two or three days before I'm really back on track. Mm. But I'm not going to not do it. <laughs> as a charity... The British Heart Foundation depends on the generosity of donors to continue carrying out our life-saving research. Thank you to all of those who already give. It's truly appreciated. 
If you too would like to donate, you can do so by going to bhf.org.uk slash donate. And now back to the conversation. So the other the other part of what we were going to talk about today was the fact that since your diagnosis, you've been very active in taking part in patient involvement groups, patient participant groups, and uh, research studies and clinical trials. Yes. Um, so I was wondering if you could first say about how you came to be involved in these things and how you came to sign up to them. Yes, because basically after my heart attack, I went to cardiac rehab and we had to talk from the local person who runs the fundraising group for the the BHF in York and I just thought yeah there's so many leaflets and things that they provide and all the research and things in a way without the BHF I may well not be here because of the research that's carried out with their funding so I started doing, as soon as I was well enough, I started doing fundraising for the BHF. So I did coffee mornings. I got involved in the the York fundraising group and they run a big bike ride each year and they do a Chase the Pud event. And then I was just running stalls for things like World Heart Day or if we had a village show, I'd... I'd have a stall out with lots of information leaflets, not necessarily to raise funds, although I put a, you know, it was, there was a donation bucket. Mm. But it was a combination of raising awareness and a bit of fundraising. So I think over five years, I raised about £5,000, which isn't an enormous amount, but um, yeah, it's £5,000 I wouldn't have had otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that the BHF do is they run a volunteer, sort of volunteer thank you day each year. And they ran one in Leeds in 2014. And I went over to that really enjoyable day, met loads of people from all over Yorkshire, from all the different fundraising groups. And you compare notes and you get to know what sort of activities they do and things. But one of the things they did on this day was they took us around the Leeds Clinical Research Facility and one of the trials they were running there was looking at pacemaker um, settings and whether they would be better individualised. So, Because at at one stage you got your pacemaker and there were standard settings that Mm -hmm. they, they, they gave them. And this guy was wondering if they looked at each individual and their lifestyle and and their metabolism and worked out whether it would be better to actually program it to the person rather than the standard settings. So, yeah, they were there and then, you know, sort of said, yeah, we have people who've had a heart attack, who've got heart failure, who have a pacemaker. So I thought, oh, that's me. So I just said to him, are you still looking for participants? So he said, well, are you interested? And that's how it all started. Um, cause yeah, So two or three weeks later, I was over there and participating in this trial. And in the waiting room, there was a poster up with all the different trials that, um, that they were doing for patients with heart failure. So I contacted the guy 
uh, or contacted the people who, you know, with all the contact numbers and just said, I'm really interested in getting involved. So since 2014, I'm just trying to think, so I think I've done eight different trials over there. And I'm, I'm just on the list. And if they need somebody with heart failure or a pacemaker or if I fit any of the criteria, they give me a phone call and I, I trot over there and do something. And um, that first trial, what, um, what was it like turning up on the first day? Did you know what, was, um, what, what you were going to be doing? Not completely, because obviously we'd had we'd been round on the volunteer day, and there was a patient there, and he was just basically having an echocardiogram. Mm-hmm. So basically, they they'd sent me some information about um, what the trial involved, and so I had an idea that yes, I was going to go on a, a treadmill, and they were going to measure my my. Um, breath as I would have a mask on as I was on the treadmill and that would measure what I was breathing in and out and that enables them to see when you're working at a certain level how hard you're working all all very technical and I don't completely understand it but I know when I'm on the treadmill as it speeds up and I'm running faster the two lines cross over and I know when the lines cross over I've worked hard enough yeah but that that sort of didn't happen oh that was quite a few visits down the line before mm-hmm. I un- completely sort of worked that out <laughs> but but yeah basically I was on a treadmill and they gradually increased the speed and increased the incline so you'd start off walking really really slowly and then gradually you were you were running and you got to a stage of the kick, I can't do any more, at which point they'd stop it. <laughs> yeah. And um, how much time do you tend to have to give to each of these trials? Oh, it varies in enormously. Uh, the pacemaker one, I mean, I, I live in York, so it's getting the train over there and you spend a couple of hours over there and so I mean for me it's a whole day and it's a whole day's activity but I just I love doing it Mm. so I mean that one that one was on a um on the pace on the treadmill and took a couple of hours another one I was on a I I was on a bike doing a similar sort of thing and that was testing whether codeine had an impact on your exercise levels but others of them I'll go over there have an echocardiogram and come home mm-hmm. you know it's, a, it's, it's very um and, and will that simple. be it so it's just that one day and that's your participation in the trial done oh no no um I'll go back several times I mean like like the codeine one that was three visits mm-hmm. I did one that actually it was about exercise training. I think it was something to do with um, looking at the blood flow in your muscles and whatever. But I, it was done through exercise training. So I went um, one week and went on the exercise bike and she measured my base level. And this was actually, it was really good. It was just after I'd had an ablation and I was nervous about getting back into exercise because I'd had two ablations the first one hadn't worked 
and it was sort of how do I get back into exercise but anyway I went on this exercise bike and then I went twice a week for four weeks and that was the exercise training she'd measured my base level in that first week mm -hmm. and then each week I had to do or each visit I had to do just a little bit more mm -hmm. and a little bit more so that by the end of four weeks so eight visits I was actually doing quite a, a significant amount more than had been at the first visit and then on the last visit uh, she re-measured actually what I'd achieved over the four weeks and and the difference in from the first readings to her last readings um, and that was brilliant because it it was exercising in a safe environment because I thought if I push myself, I can push myself really hard mm. and it won't matter because if anything happens, they'll just take me downstairs and sort me out. <laughs> yeah, so you were really able to get something out of that one. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yes, as well as yeah. the researchers. Yes, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's quite supposed to work like that, but, but sometimes it does. Mm. But for yeah. you, it's kind of that feeling of you've been able to to help out with the research and that's why you do it. Oh, absolutely. I, I just... I, f I feel research is so important because without it, we're not going to progress. And you know, I, yeah, as I said, I wouldn't be here without other people having participated in research. And this is my way of improving things. And who knows, you know, down the line, it may, may even benefit me because I might need a treatment uh, that, that they've discovered. Mm. Because all of these trials are aimed at improving quality of life and treatments for people who are living with heart failure. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And do you get to meet um, other patients through this as well? Only through the patient advisory groups. Mm -hmm. um, well, I, I mean, the first patient advisory group I went on to was actually the BHF one. And that was, yeah, that was in 2014. And then... When, when I was on the one of the trials one day, they approached me and said, you know, would you join our patient advisory group? And I just thought, oh, I'm really not sure about that. I'm just a patient. I have no knowledge, no medical knowledge. My only knowledge comes through having received treatments and whatever. And they said, that's exactly the point. You've received the treatments. You know what it's like as a patient. We know what it's like from our side. We, we work out the, the treatments we're going to give you, but we don't know how you feel after you've had them. You don't know what, we don't know what it feels like to receive them. Mm. And that we need that information because what we might, the way we might be treating you might be really uncomfortable, either physically uncomfortable or just for patients, it's outside their comfort zone of what they're, they they really want to be doing so I said oh I gave in and went I said I'll come to a meeting and see how I get on and it was just really fascinating listening to the researchers giving their talk asking for feedback and then listening to other patients in the group giving their feedback and then there were oh, quite a few of the medics there and it turned into quite a really good discussion and I just thought actually I really enjoy this so yeah but I, 
I've just carried on with that. So quite a few years I've done that now. And got involved in other patient advisory groups. And what kind of things do you get asked to discuss and give feedback on? Generally, with the one in Leeds, it's new research trials that they're looking at and sort of saying, do you think this is worthwhile doing as a as a patient, do you think this would be useful? Because, yes, we can come up with all sorts of fancy ideas, but it might just be pie in the sky and no benefit to anybody at the end of the day. So generally, they're, they're looking for that kind of feedback. I got involved with a group down in Exeter who are doing a cardiac rehab for heart failure patients. And I was at, that was a trial I was involved in in Leeds. They were sorting out a manual, uh, which basically told you all about all the different aspects of heart failure. So it was what heart failure is, all about the medications, all about exercise, all about well-being, just the whole raft of living with heart failure. Mm. So you could sort of hand it to someone when they'd been diagnosed and it would have all the information they needed? Well, the, the, the thing was, it was it's, it's a 12-week programme. Okay. So you get a progress tracker. Mm. So you build up your exercise and you have a facilitator who brings you the manual. And there's also a friends and family manual. So they involve your carer. And my poor husband, I'm not a carer. I'm just a husband. I just do... You know, I just support her. Therefore, you are a carer. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it was for, for blessing, he, getting his round, head around the fact that he is actually my carer. But, I mean, we, do, we don't think like that. Mm. It just happens. You work as a partnership. Mm. Um, but then the next stage of that was that they actually wanted to digitise it. So it was actually became available either on a phone or on a laptop and or yeah or tablet or whatever so that you yes you would still have your facilitator but you would actually be able to do it digitally mm-hmm. and it, this would enable it you know particularly during the last 2 years it's been a really valuable resource because with things closing down and not being able to to meet face-to-face and, and run cardiac rehab mm. programmes, they've been able to, to do it remotely. And, I, yeah, I've been involved in each stage of developing the app and then now they're working on training the facilitators and, and that side of it. So, yeah, it's, it's all just really interesting work. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing thing to have been part of. And I can see how doing something like that as sort of patient input is is so important. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, because you have to look at the, well, look at the interface on, on the phone. Uh, do all the links work? Can you actually navigate the thing? Does this work on the size of a phone screen? Yes, it might work on the tablet or the laptop. But a phone screen is much smaller. Um, can you see everything or um, does it work? And and how does it work? Mm. And a project like that as well must be quite satisfying because you've sort of presumably seen it from an earlier stage and then through to people out there in the real world actually using it. 
it's still in development but yes um having seen the manual um the, the sort of the original version of and tr- I was actually trialling that originally. So I wasn't on the first lot of patient groups, but but actually to have followed it through, um, yeah, probably nine years now I've been doing that one. Oh, wow. And so hopefully in the future, people, patients will be out there using it. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And so at the moment, so you're are you still involved with um, the BHF's patient advisory group? I am, although that's gone very, obviously gone very quiet over the last couple of years. Mm. I think we, we get an email on a Friday sort of saying, look at this this opportunity. And it, um, because I think researchers contact the BHF and say, oh, we're looking for somebody to help us with something or other. So that's how you can get involved in things all over the country, which possibly it's just somebody to read through the patient information leaflet and see if it's grammatically correct, whether it it can be understood, whether it makes sense. So, you know, a couple of hours reading through a document, tweaking it and sort of saying, yeah, it's fine or it it will be easier if you said sort of things like that. Mm -hmm. And what would you say to somebody who is maybe thinking of getting involved in this kind of patient advocacy work? Go for it. (laughs) You'll meet so many interesting people. You'll learn an enormous amount. And I just find it very satisfying. You know, I'm a person who feels that, you know, in life we have to get, you, you can take out, but I think I always feel you have to give back. And to me, this is, an easy way to give back mm. and the NHS you know medical medics need the support of patients uh, you know it, it, it's a two-way process and I think the, you know this is a way of of making it a two-way process mm. and the other thing I was going to ask is um, obviously you've been able to give a lot of time to these projects which is amazing um, do you think it's something where somebody who, I don't know, was still working or kind of had more time commitments, would they still be able to do things like take part in the patient advisory group? This is an enormous problem that they face because they're trying to get diversity within the groups. And when you sort of go on to a Zoom or go to a meeting, it's mainly the white middle class retired because we're the ones with time. But recently they have started paying people to do a lot of this work. And this is to encourage people who are still in work or who, for whatever reason, you know, would financially struggle to get involved. So, you know, they are trying to to make it easier for people. But again, it's a lot of men because they're the ones with time, um, you know, trying to get women to take part again. I mean, that's quite a hard thing. Actually, recruiting is very, very difficult. And how, to, you know, it, it's a headache all around. It's how to, how to diversify, how to get um, different groups, different sectors of society to get involved. Yeah, so it's kind of an ongoing process to try and get you know, lots more different points of view feeding into this process. 
Yes, yeah, because mm. you've, you've just got to look across the whole whole population and, and it's very difficult. Mm. Yeah, and um, in terms of what the future holds for you, are you kind of open to open and willing to carry on doing these trials for as long as you can? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so more more getting on the treadmill and getting on the exercise bike. Yes, I mean, I'm just waiting to be called back for the next one. <laughs> I don't know when the call will come, but hopefully not too long. <laughs> and that's great. Thank you so much for, for your time and talking us through all of that. That's fine. If you're interested in taking part in a clinical trial or patient advisory group, there will be links in the notes for this episode where you can get more information. And you can also visit the BHF website at bhf.org.uk. Remember, if you've got any questions about your heart or circulatory health, you can contact the BHF Heart Helpline. The details are also on our website. If you want to get in touch with us, we're on the ticker tapes at bhf.org. Thank you for listening and join us next time on The Ticker Tapes.